Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. Hallo, was ist das? Mehr Deutsch? Sie wetten. Diesmal geht es um Roboter statt Zeitreisen. Also, what you just heard was the Metropolis theme by Gottfried Huppertz, conducted by Frank Strobel and performed by the Rundfunk Symphony Orchestra Berlin. That's right, mein Volk, more German stuff coming your way, but this time it's about robots and futurism, because today we cover the 1927 classic silent movie Metropolis, adapted for film from the novel and screenplay by Thea von Harbaugh, and directed by Fritz Lang. Welcome into this episode of Science Factual. I'm your host, Reese Hendrick, and I've been very much looking forward to covering some older sci-fi, so I jumped at the chance to really get into this preeminent sci-fi film, which comes as a suggestion from our very funny guest, Dennis Cruz. He grew up watching early sci-fi, and it doesn't get much earlier than the silver screen. We met up before the Father's Favorites Comedy Showcase, which takes place every first Friday of the month at My Father's Place in Southeast Portland, hosted by Michael J. Phelps. We did an episode of Science Factual about Don't Look Up, a more modern piece of sci-fi comedy for episode 12. You can check that out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Shady Pines Radio Archives. In case you haven't encountered the many versions of Metropolis, or flat out haven't seen this iconic piece of sci-fi history, then I suppose this SPOILER ALERT! SPOILER ALERT! is for you. I mean, I get it. I don't hang out with many 95-year-olds myself, but this film should be an exception. And being that this isn't a talkie, I think it's important to do a plot summary before getting into the facts behind the film. The following is generally accepted as the most universally conveyed plot summary across the various iterations of the film. In the future, wealthy industrialists and business magnates and their top employees reign over the city of Metropolis from colossal skyscrapers while underground dwelling workers toil to operate the great machines that power it. Jo Frederson is the city's master. His son, Freider Freiderson, idles away his time at sports and in a pleasure garden, but is interrupted by the arrival of a young woman named Maria, who has brought a group of workers' children to witness the lifestyle of their rich, quote-unquote, brothers. Maria and the children are ushered away, but Freider becomes fascinated by her and goes to the lower levels to find her. In the machine halls, he witnesses the explosion of a huge machine that kills and injures numerous workers. Freighter has an hallucination that the machine is a temple of Moloch, and the workers are being fed to it. When the hallucination ends and he sees that the dead workers are being carried away on stretchers, he hurries to tell his father about the accident. 
Grote, foreman of the heart machine, brings Frederson secret maps found on the dead workers. Frederson fires his assistant, Josefat, for not being the first to bring him details about the explosion or the maps. After seeing his father's cold indifference toward the harsh conditions faced by the workers, Freighter secretly rebels against him by deciding to help the workers. He enlists Yosefat's assistance and returns to the machine halls where he trades places with a worker who has collapsed from exhaustion. Freiderson takes the maps to the inventor Rothwang to learn their meaning. Rothwang has been in love with a woman named Hel who left him to marry Freiderson and later died giving birth to Freider. Rothwang shows Freiderson a robot he has built to resurrect Hel. The maps show a network of catacombs beneath Metropolis, and the two men go to investigate. The eavesdrop on a gathering of workers, including Freighter. Maria addresses them, prophesizing the arrival of a mediator who can bring the working and ruling classes together. Freighter believes he can fill the role and declares his love for Maria. Freighterson orders Rothwang to give Maria's likeness to the robot so that it can discredit her among the workers, but is unaware that Rothwang plans to use the robot to destroy Metropolis and ruin both Freighterson and Freighter. Rothwang kidnaps Maria, transfers her likeness to the robot, and sends her to Freiderson. Freider finds the two embracing, and believing it is the real Maria, falls into a prolonged delirium. Intercut with his hallucinations, the false Maria unleashes chaos throughout Metropolis, driving men to murder and steering dissent among the workers. Freider recovers and returns to the catacombs, accompanied by Yosefat. Finding the false Maria urging the workers to rise up and destroy the machines, he accuses her of not being the real Maria. The workers follow the false Maria from their city to the machine halls, leaving their children behind. They destroy the machines, triggering a flood in their city deeper underground. The real Maria, having escaped from Rothfang's house, rescues the children with help from Freyther and Josephat. Groth berates the celebrating workers for abandoning their children in the flooded city. Believing their children to be dead, the hysterical workers capture the false Maria and burn her at the stake. A horrified Freyder watches, not understanding the deception, until the fire reveals her to be a robot. Rothwang becomes delusional, seeing the real Maria as his lost hell, and chases her to the roof of the cathedral, pursued by Freyder. The two men fight as Freyderson and the workers watch from the street, and Rothwang falls to his death. In the final scene, Freyder fulfills his role as mediator by linking the hands of Freyderson and Grot to bring them together, uniting the classes. Now, out of the characters referenced in this synopsis, here's a list of the main cast. We had Alfred Abel as Jo Freiderson, the master of Metropolis, Gustav Froleich as Freyther, Jo Freiderson's son, Rudolf Klein Roge as Rothwang, the inventor. By the way, Rothwang's mechanical right hand was later imitated in Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, one of my favorites. We're definitely covering that in the future. Then we have Fritz Rosp as the Thin Man or Freiderson's spy. Theodore Loos as Josefat, Freiderson's assistant and Freider's friend. Erwin Biswanger as 11811, a worker also known as Georgie. Heinrich George as Grot, guardian of the heart machine. Brigitte Helm as Maria and also the machine man. Then we have Heinrich Gatto as master of ceremonies in Pleasure Gardens as an uncredited role. As an aside note for the casting, uh, four roles, the creative man, the machine man, death, and the seven deadly sins are included in the opening credits, but do not list any actors' names. Alright, let's get into a little bit of history behind the film. 
Metropolis is a 1927 German expressionist science fiction drama film directed by Fritz Lang and written by Thea von Harbau in collaboration with Lang from von Harbau's 1925 novel of the same name. Intentionally written as a treatment, it stars the aforementioned cast for Universum Film AG. This silent film is regarded as a pioneering science fiction movie, being among the first feature-length movies of that genre. Filming took place over 17 months in 1925 to 1926 at a cost of more than 5 million Reichsmarks, or the equivalent of about 19 million euro. Made in Germany during the Weimar period, Metropolis is set in a futuristic urban dystopia and follows the attempts of Freder, the wealthy son of the city master, and Maria, a saintly figure, to the workers to overcome the vast gulf separating the classes in their city and bring the workers together with Jo Fredersen, the city master. The film's message is encompassed in the final intertital, quote, the mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart. Metropolis met a mixed reception upon release. Critics found it visually beautiful and powerful. The film's art direction by Otto Hunt, Eric Kettelhut, and Karl Wallbrecht draws influence from opera, Bauhaus, Cubist, and Futurist design, along with the touches of the Gothic in the scenes in the catacombs, the cathedral, and Rothwang's house and lauded its complex special effects, but accused its story of being naive. H.G. Wells described the film as silly, and the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction calls the story trite, and its politics ludicrously simplistic. Its alleged communist message was also criticized at the time. Metropolis is now widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films ever made, ranking 35th in Sight and Sound's 2012 Critics Poll. In 2001, the film was inscribed on UNESCO's Memory of the World Register, the first film thus distinguished. Metropolis' screenplay was written by Thea von Haubau, a popular writer in Weimar, Germany, jointly with Lang, her then-husband. The film's plot originated from a novel of the same title written by Haubau for the sole purpose of being made into a film. The novel in turn drew inspiration from H.G. Wells, Mary Shelley, and Villiers de Ilse Adams' works and other German dramas. The novel features strongly in the film's marketing campaign and was serialized in the run-up to its release. Harbaugh and Lang collaborated on the screenplay derived from the novel and several plot points and thematic elements, including most of the references to magic and occultism present in the novel, were dropped. The time setting of Metropolis is open to interpretation. The 2010 re-release and reconstruction, which incorporated the original title cards written by Thea von Harbaugh, did not specify a year. Before the reconstruction, Lottie Eisner and Paul M. Jensen placed the events happening around the year 2000. Giorgio Mortadera's rescored version included a title card placing the film in the year 2026, while Paramount's original U.S. release said the film takes place in the year 3000. A note in one edition of Harbaugh's novel says that the story does not take place in any particular place or time, in the past or the future. Meanwhile, in the 1963 Ace Books edition, which reprints the 1927 English edition, specifies the setting as, quote, the world of 2026 A.D. Okay, here are some rapid-fire facts about the film. The budget of 1.5 million Reichsmarks eventually swelled to 5.3 million, which in 1926 was about $1.2 million. The film looked like it cost even more than that with its huge sets and massive crowds of extras, but adjusted for inflation, that $1.2 million is only $16 million today, or about one-tenth of the cost of a large-scale sci-fi epic that would be made in theaters today. 
Articles about Metropolis often mention that Lang used, quote, thousands of extras, with 36,000 being the number officially declared by the studio in publicity materials at the time. But according to Lang, that's nonsense. There were never thousands of extras, he said in 1971. Never. 250, maybe 300. It depends on how you use a crowd. You can actually adjust those figures to just north of 2,000 individuals used in various scenes. For the scenes where the worker's city is flooded, Lang brought in some 500 children, note that's more than the 250 to 300 extras he cited earlier, from Berlin's poorer districts, and had them stand in a pool of water that was, in the words of one actor, kept at quite a low temperature in order to nip excessive demonstrations of our youthful gaiety in the bud. That sequence took 14 days to shoot. To his credit, Lang made sure the kids were well-fed and cared for during those two weeks on set, and he was no more indifferent toward them when the cameras were rolling than he was toward anyone else. In fact, all in all, it was a pretty safe set with no recorded deaths. He also had no problem finding 500 malnourished children due to the economic strife plaguing Germany at the time between the world wars. Speaking of which, let's just assume that the majority of the cast of 500 children survived to the year 1939 from the year 1925 when the filming took place. That would place a 7-year-old at the time to around the age of 21, and what with the Nazi party having a popularity percentage of roughly 45% approval in the time frame leading up to the war, you're looking at a figure of anywhere between 200 to 225 of those kids growing up to become Nazis, if not more. I bring the Nazis up because, much to the dismay of Lang, a fellow Jew, both Hitler and Goebbels lauded the film for reasons unintended and often reimagined the film in conversation to have more fascist undertones. Hitler even fancied himself as the character Freder, but to me he just sounds like this. I'll myself, I'll to me, I'm the crowd who's out to change our history, I'll myself raise your hand, there's no greater dictator in the land. The connection of this film to the Nazi regime is actually quite remarkable. Thea von Harbaugh, who was Fritz Lang's wife, was an ardent and early supporter of the party. Not only Hitler and Goebbels, but all the inner circle were entranced by the film and considered it as sort of a social blueprint. Lang, of course, was Jewish, but the Fuhrer offered him a pass for his ingenuity and vision. Very rare in Nazi Germany. He subsequently fled to Paris and then eventually America. Lang built some very large sets, but a lot of the visual effects he wanted required something even bigger. The effects expert Eugene Schuften created pioneering visual effects for Metropolis. Among the effects used are miniatures of the city, a camera on a swing, and most notably the Schuften process in which mirrors are used to create the illusion that actors are occupying miniature sets. This new technique was seen again just two years later in Blackmail in 1929. For decades, all that survived in Metropolis, the 1927 version, were an incomplete original negative and copies of shortened, re-edited foreign release prints. Over a quarter of the film was believed to have been lost. However, in July 2008, Germany's Zeit magazine reported the discovery of a 16mm dupe negative copy of the film at the Buenos Aires Museo de Cine by film historian and collector Fernando Martin Peña. Up until then, all that was known was that an original full-length 35mm export print had been sent to Argentina in 1928. The last officially documented screening of this version had occurred in the 1950s and was considered lost. What prompted the discovery was that Martin Peña remembered stories from Argentinian movie operators claiming to have screened a version of Metropolis of over two hours long in the 1980s. 
The only known versions at the time were all considerably shorter. Examining the reels in Buenos Aires, cinema experts realized that the copy had a relatively poor picture quality, mainly because it had also copied all the damage from the original 35mm film that had been worn from years of use. The copying process from 35 to 16mm film also meant that some parts of the frame had been lost. Nevertheless, the reels contained almost all of the previously missing sequences, around 25 minutes worth of footage, predominantly those involving the Thin Man, who spies on Freyther, and Worker 11811 heading to and from Yoshivara. Additionally, in October 2008, it was announced that another, hopefully earlier copy of the obsolete 9.5mm format had been held in the University of Chile's film library, intentionally mislabeled to avoid destruction during the 1973 military coup that took place there. The missing scenes from the 2008 16mm copy were cleaned up as best as possible, reframed into the 4 by 3 aspect ratio to match the original footage, and re-edited into the film based on the original screenplay. After almost 80 years, the film is now practically complete, barring sections such as Freighter listening to a priest giving a sermon on the coming apocalypse and Jo Freiderson's fight with Rothfang. Here's a list of all of the versions circulated since the original release, which, by the way, hasn't been viewed by anyone alive for at least 50 years. The original premiere cut of the film has been lost, but there have been many attempts throughout history at restoration. There was an East German restoration that took place in 1972. In 1984, Italian music producer Giorgio Moroder underwent a major restoration after procuring the rights to the film. There is a version put together by the Munich Archive in 1987. And in 2001, a definitive restoration was made by film preservationist Martin Kerber of the Munich version. Later in 2010, an official complete collection of the best parts of all of those accurate versions were compiled and released. Up next, we have a great interview with comedian Dennis Cruz. We got to talking about Metropolis and Nazis before the showcase and Mike at my father's place. Make sure to stick around for the end of this episode for a hilarious set from Dennis as well. Dennis, if you're made up of one thing, it's life experience. Yeah, no, I've That's, been through some shit. You are pure life experience. <laughs> you don't think about it when it's happening. You think about it 50 years down the road when you go, wow, I lived through that. Yeah, you made it. You're still here doing, doing comedy. Doing stuff. You know you're here, right? We're doing an interview. Yes. For, okay, yeah. all right, that's that's good. <laughs> Where I'm okay. at. Yeah. Most I'll, days. I'll, I'll curb the old humor to that. No, not a whole lot of head head trauma injury remains. Uh, well, I've had a lot of head trauma. <laughs> a lot of CTE lot in of your times. in your history. Yeah, I've been hit in the head a lot of times. Okay. Declared dead once because of a head, head trauma. Was that during your your stint in the military? Yeah, I was I was going home. I was getting onto the freeway, had to yield, so I yielded. The guy hit me doing about 60 in a fucking full metal Ford Fairlane 1960s edition. Uh, it's a solid car. Yeah. You don't yeah, want to get his, hit by one of those. His it's back just pure end metal. Yeah. <laughs> drove my, I was in a VW Bug. His his front end drove my engine to where it hit. I fell, I went into the window, popped the window out, collapsed the steering column. It shouldn't be collapsible. Slammed my head back and basically died. That's a that's a serious injury. And I remember waking up and seeing all these lights flashing and going, I got to go home. <laughs> and got up and I walked over. And then this is the ambulance dude told me this. He said, this dude walked over that I had just pronounced dead and I didn't know what to do. So I just kind of said, okay. <laughs> we'll get you, just... you home, buddy. Oh, fuck, that was a fucked up night. And that's how you got started in stand-up comedy? No. Oh. No. <laughs> 
No, I got well, started to stand up when I lost my upper palate because I have several forms of cancer and one of the cancers got into my jaw, my upper jaw, and my upper palate was no longer my palate, but uh, a tumor. It had turned into a... Oh, it just replaced thing. itself with a tumor? Yeah. The tumor grew a layer over and because of the bone deterioration. Oh, man. I, I, I shattered my upper jaw when I was 12 and it was all wired together. And so all that material was not healthy. And so the cancer came in and kind of took it over. When was this in your life? This was 2017, 2016. Get fucked. Like five, like yeah. seven years ago? Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I saw a picture of you recently with short hair and a, and yeah. a clean shaven face. Yeah, you posted that at that PFP 2019. in 2019. Yeah. yeah, that was before this whole... You know, you're good looking at one point. Yeah. <laughs> you were... I appreciate You it. looked all right, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and for having your face gone through a windshield, that's pretty... You look pretty good. Folks, the voice other than my own, this is Dennis Cruz, everyone. <laughs> and we're here to talk about Metropolis. Metropolis. That came out when you were a boy, right? Yeah, uh, 1927. Yeah. Uh, you were... I, th I think my grandmother was a child. She oh. was 20. She okay. was 20 when Metropolis came out. But she never saw it because she lived on a reservation all her life. So she never, she didn't see it. She didn't yeah. see a theater movie until she was 50. Yeah, they, did, they didn't give the reservations the moving pictures no, until, no. yeah, until some time after. And they also didn't give them any money. No. Well, <laughs> no. go to the movies. So. That is very true. Yeah. I mean. No, they, well, with the latest SCOTUS ruling of, yeah. of states being able to prosecute anybody right. on the reservation or not. They just broke all the fucking treaties they ever signed with any of the nations. Not that they meant anything to begin no, they, with. They, they didn't. Yeah. But it's, no, it's, it's all arbitrary. You look at and you go, oh yeah, we were waiting for that one to happen. Well, they're just making all sorts of great decisions recently. Not really. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's all based on the 14th Amendment. It's all based on the right to privacy and self-autonomy. And what uh, they're saying... It's too much freedom. We've got to... It's too much freedom. Well, what they're saying is the federal government can't regulate your autonomy where you live. Your environment has to regulate your autonomy, has to regulate who you are and how you act. What, so, the, so it's up to each state? Well, this is, this is taking the law back to the 1870s mm. of states' rights and predilection over who lives there and how they live there. Yeah, because the latter half of the 19th century was the pinnacle of law well, in this country. <laughs> well, no, but it was about control, which is metropolis Yes, in a nutshell. Yes, absolutely. It's about control. It's yeah. about the freedom of trying to get the people to understand you, there's more to life than just work. I mean, the 10-hour work clock that they had. In that Already thing was, was super fucked. Yeah, it's beautifully. The, yeah, but it's also super fucked because... There's that expectation to go beyond the eight-hour workday. Yeah, well, ten-hour days. The ten-hour day. Ten-hour days. And the workers going in and out of the factory, you see that in America. You see that in all these countries. Not Maybe not today because of the fucking pandemic bullshit. Right, but, well, Chappelle has a good bit about, like, you know, you know why they make us work nine to five? Because if you work nine to six, you might kill a motherfucker. <laughs> you know? and, it's, and it's true. I mean, like, there are labor laws in this country for a reason. All right, before we get too deep into Metropolis, uh, Dennis, what is your Instagram account? The Den Man ninety nine thirty three. That's D A D E N M A N. The Den Man ninety nine thirty three. I'm glad that you said it that way because I always said it in my head. Dayton Man. Yeah, Dayton is 
Yeah. Dutch. It just means good deeds. I am Dutch. Yeah. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, that so. was one of the factors when in my youth when I came up with that was. Uh, oh, was was that uh, Dutch language Dutch. influence? Oh, neat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, you spent some time in, in Amsterdam and also, uh, if I remember, Den Haag and and, and yeah. Rotterdam and that whole yeah. coastal I southern worked, area. Well, I worked all in that area, the uh, compensation software company. And we worked in the banks, and we worked in 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 a lot of the uh, uh, regulatory businesses, because the software allowed people if if you sold a product at a salesman level, the software allowed everybody in the chain of command, from the manager to the supervisor to the general manager to the CEO, would get a cut of that sale. Hmm. So everybody wanted our software. Sure. So I went to Canada. I went to London. I went to Ireland. I went to. Scotland. It's like uh, the office space software. Yeah. Basically. They take that fraction of a penny. Fraction they take, of a penny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I, I can see that being a, a Dutch based company. I mean, the, the Germans, the Dutch, uh, the Swiss, they are the, the bank, international monetary fund bankers, basically. They, they, they handle a lot of money. They sure do. They handle a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. The Germans, and it's, it's a little sensitive covering <laughs> Metropolis. Like, well, yeah, well, because only four years prior to its release was the beer hall push, yeah. and then you know, and then four, four years later, after his release, yeah, the chancellorship. A, a nice for, little guy with a funny mustache show up for Dare Hitler. Yeah, I, I, um, okay, but we'll get into all that in a minute. Sure, uh, Dennis, how did you get started in stand up comedy? Um, was it the CTEs? <laughs> was was it? <laughs> it was the fact that I couldn't talk for a while, yeah, uh, I couldn't, my mouth was, I couldn't eat sipping stuff through a straw so you're in your head a lot uh for about six months Oof, yeah and and it was one of those things where i was like i'm thinking of all this stuff and i started writing stuff down mm. and i was like you know what this could be funny Did i had a look into going on stage now that i have good teeth which is was always, that part of the deal which was all well i paid several thousand dollars for these teeth so i could eat but they're what was, uh, do you remember the first thing you said when you were able to like really talk like do you remember yeah i need a cigarette uh <laughs> because <laughs> i had to quit smoking yeah well you vape now yeah well yeah. it's different um, sure with cigarettes you get a certain uh, amount of suction and what that does is that was breaking down oh and, yeah your pa- yeah your upper palate and the whole cheek yeah. like the cheek tissue and all that yeah oh dang and so yeah i didn't have i don't have that force if you hand me a bong i wouldn't be able to take a hit i don't have that kind of suction anymore oh man um so you'd be a horrible gay yeah yeah i don't suck a good dick uh, That's too bad, man. It's fantastic. Or I don't suck a dick good. Right. Okay, I mean, fair. Yeah. All right. You can. It's just not a great... <laughs> it's, not, it's not great for everybody. It's not great. Yeah. It's All right. Great. It's not great for me, and it's probably not great for them. Fair enough. Maybe lose the teeth. <laughs> yeah. So, what was your first exposure to science fiction? Death Race 2000 at a drive-in movie theater with my grandpa. Nice. One's supposed to be there. One's supposed to be on the bill, but we saw uh, White Line Fever. This was 1976. Saw the movie White Line Fever. Jan Michael Vincent plays a truck, semi-truck driver, which I wanted to be when I was a kid. Nice. Because I thought it would be cool to drive around the country. Convoy? Yeah. Yeah, I saw a convoy. Smokey and the Bandit. Six Office, Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. One, two. Yeah. Two was better than one. Yeah. But three sucked. Uh, <laughs> was Bert in three? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Because um, usually they start to suck when, like, the main character doesn't come back. As, well, like, a... well, Jerry Reed was in all of them. Okay. Because they went up to five, I believe. And they had that's, a different sheriff. They had a That's different, Rocky territory. I didn't realize they, they, they had, were that. But Jerry Reed was there. Okay. It's kind of like the Tremors series. Oh, sure. Where you started off with Kevin Bacon and, and you ended up with... Uh, 
Taylor Lautner or whatever. No, who was the, the dude <laughs> from uh, Family Ties? Or was it Family Ties? Michael Keaton, not Michael Keaton, uh, Michael J. Fox's uh, TV series, The Father. Okay. Who's in Tremors. Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't ventured something. too far into Tremors territory. But he was in all of them except for the third one because I like he was good supposed movies. to be dead. <laughs> yeah. And okay. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, well, that's always a very convenient plot yeah, device. Yeah, but it had Fred Ward in the first one. He went away after the second one. Kevin Bacon was gone after the first one. Well, he's footloose and fancy free. Yeah, well... So, so when did you first come across Metropolis? Which is what, by the way, uh, is what we're here to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, um, when I was in my, I want to say my mid twenties, I started looking at uh, older movies, not necessarily sci-fi, just uh, without sound. And I came across Metropolis. I read about it. Oh, it's the first science fiction movie, and I was like, well, now I got to watch it because I was hooked on sci-fi. I have a counterpoint to that, but continue. I was hooked on sci-fi from the time I was 10 and I was able to, my grandfather bought me, it was a magazine, uh, Phantasmagoria. Oh yeah. Phantasmagoria. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I got a subscription to it. Nice. Cause it showed you how all the effects were done. And he sure. said, if you're going to do this, you might as well know how it's done. Absolutely. And that was my introduction to it. And then I started reading about different movies and Fritz Lang and the, the name just stuck in my head. Yeah, it's it's based on on her novel Thea von Harbaugh. Okay. Um, yeah, she they were they were uh, partners in life and in writing and ah. cinema, and uh, yeah, she she wrote the principal material for it, and Fritz Lang reimagined it for the for the sure. screen. Which for 1927, the visuals are fucking amazing. It's fucking amazing, dude. They're I, so I, good. I made notes about they they had candles. They had a robot, but they still had to use candles. The yeah. concrete designs, the structures yes. they used, all of all that the stuff sets. was like, my God, how much, how long did this take to fucking build this right. set? Well, and, one and scene? the water scenes, uh, were, they did it for 15 days in freezing cold water. Yeah. And speaking of the 500 children in that scene, <laughs> it's, it was 1927. Those kids were six or seven, eight years yeah. old. They were running around. The majority of those kids became Nazis. Yeah. Oh, definitely. For definitely. sure. At least. Well, like, the ones that lived through it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I was <laughs> right. The movie. I, yeah, the movie that is. Yeah. I, I, I think that like the, I would give a easy, soft 60% oh, of yeah. those kids oh, yeah. that's, oh, that yeah. grew up of age became ardent Nazis. Yeah, definitely. And that, speaking that was, of which, I, I think Hitler and Goebbels loved the film. <laughs> they yeah. did. They, they well, fucking they, they ate that films. shit up. They were, they were, general, they they were, they were yeah. theater kids. That's so true. They, they were, were the kids. world's worst theater kids. <laughs> but uh, no, I loved I loved in the movie where they were like, "Oh, we got to get out of here," and maybe I'm ruining it. Spoiler alert! Um, at the end, where everything's catching fire and blowing up, and, and all the all right. the parents are like, "Oh fuck, Re we got to get out of here!" And, yeah. and they run off and they get in the elevator, and everybody gets to save, and they go, "Oh wait, the kids. Where are the kids? <laughs> oh, yeah. we forget the kids. Oh, we'll make more." <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, at, at that time, you know, like in their place in society, that is what they That's were good what, for. That's yeah, what they were there yeah, for. They were there to. So, what is your perception of when this takes place? Because I've heard three different things. Well, four different things. One is that it takes place in the year two thousand. No. The other is that it pl takes place in the year three thousand. Yeah, that'd be. Or for some reason, the year two thousand twenty-six. Huh. I saw that in a couple of articles. I didn't see any necessarily, like, anything that points to it. But the novel doesn't set a date. No, and it shouldn't. Because you have so many different juxtapositions of, of, of imagery. Yes. In the film itself, it makes you go, well, this could be the 
1800s with a robot, sure. Or this could be 3,000, 5,000. We could be going, because they made, well, I'm not going to say they made reference to it, but there was reference to H.G. Wells' time machine with the Eloy and the Morlocks. Yeah. The Mo- with yeah. The, the workers and the, the ones that lived underground and the ones that were up on the top. And I'm going, yeah, that was the whole classist struggle they were that H.G. Wells was trying to predict. Plus, they treated the women with so much respect, you knew it was a fucking foreign film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's too true. That the well, women... Speaking he, of old, the oldest science fiction, Les Voyages de Lune, is, yeah, is, the, uh, the, which is what the, the logo for Science Factual robot, is based the, off of. The rocket, the rocket to, the to the moon, yeah. And they pocket in the eye with the cheese. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the oldest science fiction film. And, yeah. and I've, I've been reading recently that, like, you know, Jules Verne, you know, is often accredited with creating the science fiction genre mary shelley shelley absolutely created science fiction in a mainstream sense and there's even evidence toward like in the early 17th century that there's arguably some works that can be considered science fiction but i i consider dante's inferno science fiction okay Uh, but i also consider the bible Science fiction. <laughs> it's made well, up it's, shit. It is certainly fiction. Yeah. I don't know how scientific it is, but it's very fictional. Well, it's magical. It's fantasy. Yes, it is definitely fi- science yeah. fiction. Yeah, because you know, oftentimes, like people put science fiction underneath fantasy. Yeah, I think it's they stand alone. They're, they are definitely two separate entities. Yeah, but anytime you're dealing with shit just happening, I consider that science fiction. That's the whole Star Trek. I grew up in the '60s, '70s. Star Trek was on TV. That's how shit happens. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, this hap- this appeared magically in front of me because somebody beamed it here. Right. Science fiction. What's the difference? Yeah. What's the difference between that device beaming something and God's will beaming something? Yeah. Or or the ma- or, or, ent- the, or because the, God the is really just an entity. Right. A sor- yeah. Exactly. Summoning a demon. Absolutely. And, you know. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. But everything was magic back then. And and if you if you put a timeline on it, I would say it's a totally different culture. Um, and that that also reflects who made it. That also reflects the German mindset, at least my understanding. Oh, absolutely. And well, and, and think about this too. Like, there's a lot of imagery that's stolen from this film that's put into actual German society closely after it. Oh yeah. And insofar as like architecture, if you look at the Club of Sons, yeah. that and you look at the Berlin Stadium for the Olympics, they're almost nearly identical in their architecture. Sure. And well, no, part- I'm sure this had a great influence on. Because the buildings were fucking amazing. I'm sorry. They sure just were. Yeah. Whole... Yeah. I, I, I mean, the, the Art Deco styling of the film is iconic. Yeah. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. The way that it's shot. The fact that the frame rate is so good. Yeah. Like, especially it's, for it's not choppy. And somebody it... sitting there with a crank. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. That's what you forget while you're watching this. Yeah. That all the man hours. Literal totally. man hours oh they they would reshoot because yeah. fritz lang was a perfectionist oh, God, so he's yeah. like you know oh i no, we got to do this over it doesn't quite look right oh this wasn't right in frame or yeah. this that and the third so i mean yeah i would imagine working for him would be very tedious especially with the energy that went into capturing oh sure film at yeah. that time definitely no it was, it was a lot of work to get something on film much less in a two hours of two and a half hours of a yeah. story. So that brings that, me to my next question, which is like, which version did you watch? Because there are a lot of versions. This was a 1927 version. Um, it was uh, English uh, placard 
uh, the, the wording, so I know that it was updated from, from the German original. Was it the Argentinian version that was found and then retranslated, or was it one of the original it German was, versions it was that was translated to... That they added so it was the, the missing Amer- part. The Americanized version. Sure. Okay. Yeah, because th- there are a couple of different story plots that are reimagined to fit oh, yeah. different narratives. And I don't doubt that's what happened here. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But the images that they used to fill the gaps, where there were gaps, didn't necessarily affect the overall story of... I mean, it was very Ayn Randy-ish. The <laughs> workers unite, and the workers got to do better, and the workers got to do this, and the horrible boss... Overlord. A lot of shit was put on the workers for no, but but it's also to show their struggle. I feel like. Yeah. No. Well, they had a shitty life. And I and I think that's why it spoke so much to people like Hitler and Goebbels, who were creating a narrative to gain power through the struggle of the workers of the time, who were being exploited even further because of the reparations due from World War One. Right. No. World War One. Fuck Germany. Fuck Germany. Fuck Germany. And they were like, "How are we going to pay this?" And I'm like. They Why just actually they just it? recently finished paying it off yeah. in like 2016. 90s? That was the 90s or something? No, it was way more recent. Oh, really? Yeah, no, they <laughs> just finished paying off the World War One reparations. Like, yeah, I knew they were. Oh, finally, and then oh wait. Yeah. Oh, we have this other thing. Uh, so, who's your favorite character in the movie? The android. Yeah. Not the woman. No. That re- that was the original. The the android. And how did I know it was the, the android? The shell. Because her left eye was fucked up. Yes. The whole that was a great way well, and, to and, the, and the way that she would yeah her her yeah. movements were a lot jer- jerkier yeah that, uh, that more left sinister eye thing was a great way to symbolize yeah that's who I'm looking at that's how I know it um that and the pentagram thing that was kind of weird well so that that speaks to the magical side of things yeah. there was a lot of like what I would consider like theosophy so sure. like magical thinking that came out of the 1800s into the turn of the 20th century. And, you know, ultimately, like, the imagery that you see within there with Rotwang... Yeah. It messes saw, people up. It, it messes does. people up. It looks like Rotwang. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. really just this is not gonorrhea. It's just syphilis. It's, that would it's, be it, a horrible name to have growing up as a kid. That was What's Al Capone's... Rotwang! It's Al Capone's <laughs> penis's name. <laughs> so, yeah. so you like the android. I like, I like the android, too. And I call it an android because it imbibes the, like, essence of Maria. Yeah. Yeah, without, so it's not so more. It's not so much robotic. It is robotic in its husk, but then yeah. when it it retains the essence of a person, I think it becomes more sentient. Sure. And yeah, you know, although it is at the behest of its master or the set of parameters that are set to it, like hey, do this. Yeah, and that that was one thing that you saw at the beginning of it was they went, okay, we got to free this because they're better, and that was the goal. Uh, her whole mission at from the androids' whole mission at that point was to get the workers free of their strife and labor or what have you. It's, it's good to see that they're representing the class struggle, the the struggle between the working person who who trudges into the factory, trudge in unison, in lockstep, oh, and you can tell who's going in for their shift and, and who's, who's coming, coming out. out. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's and, and I love that representation. Yeah, the desperation that they feel to through obligation to oh, the yeah. job. Oh yeah, is also like I feel that so hard because I've gone above and beyond and used my own personal time in my headspace regarding something that I'm not getting paid for. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like I I can totally see how 
it gets so ingrained in your brain and you get so drudged down into a system, you're like in desperation trying to perpetrate the very thing that's keeping you down. Well, you see that in 1984 too. Oh, it was it was greatly represented in 1984. Um, but with with Metropolis, you see what, how we're trained. It's one of those things I do at the underbar. Um, at the underbar, all the bathroom, and this is totally off kilter, but maybe it'll make sense. But at the underbar, they have a woman's bathroom. It's plainly marked women. Yeah. It's got a sign on it. Yeah. And the men's, there's no marking. Right. Right. And so guys will walk up and they'll point at the men's room because there's somebody in there. And No, but yeah, there's someone in there, but this other one's not unoccupied. You can go in there. Oh, no, man, I ain't going in there. I've done it. You and, I, you and, I, you and I have had this, inter- you and I have had this interaction <laughs> yeah, at Underbar. That's what I'm saying. And I've stood there for many minutes as people, and not and I don't mean just women, but people go yeah, in and out yeah. of the, the women's restroom. But we're conditioned. Sure. And that's what Metropolis brilliantly exposes. I've had women at Underbar say, no, it's cool. Go ahead. Yeah. I don't care. Like, yeah. you were here. Go to the bathroom. And I, it's a my conditioning is like... Oh, wait, no. And I think of myself as pretty open-minded. Sure. But yet still, yeah, no, it's very true. So, you know, it's not just your actions and scheduling. It's your very thought process. Yeah, it's how you approach the situation. We've been taught. We've been conditioned. It's like a Pavlovian response. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's I get up, I go to work. I get up, I, I, I go to school. I do eight hours there which is kind of convenient for school. It's eight hours and work is eight hours. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Uh, it's almost like you the Get your foil hats out, folks. And then, <laughs> and then you go home, you eat dinner, you go to sleep, you redo the same fucking thing all over again. Yeah, and, it's very true. And ultimately, I, I think that like much like a cult, they always keep you busy. Yeah. So that you never question what it is that you're doing. Sure. And I feel like society right now is, or capitalism in general, is a cult. Yeah, you, you got to believe in it. And even then, you're kind of stuck with it. Capitalism is, 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 is great for the people that run the show. It's horrible yeah, if, for if the you, ones that do If you feel work. comfortable exploiting people, well, that's, the, that's the whole thing. There is no ethical consumption in capitalism, even if you are like... Well, no. Capitalism doesn't care if you live or die as long as it gets paid. Sure, yeah. And, and it doesn't matter who's in charge... Because there always be somebody else in charge, as long as they get paid. Yeah, well, and, and they'll choose some. There's always someone else who's willing to be in charge as well. I mean, you know. Well, and that that was that was part of. I learned that, that in high school. When, that was when, part when of the, what was being portrayed in Metropolis yeah. with the father and the son, which the whole Friedersen was his son and son. So Fre- be Freder Freiderson is the worst <laughs> name of <laughs> all time. That was crazy. That was a crazy naming thing. Yeah. But he was in charge, didn't like being in charge, created a catalyst for change. Yeah. And his son happened to fall in love with it. So he paid attention to it and went along with it. Right. Now now that it affected him personally, then it's then he's willing to, you know, give or Or at know. least take a look. Yeah. At that other side at that other well and even his, even his plan is to let them destroy themselves yeah. he's like oh well if they stop working the fail safe is that the fucking city's gonna flood <laughs> and they're all gonna die which is what happened which is what spoiler yeah well <laughs> i issued a spoiler alert earlier in the episode so we're we're good yeah. there is your, who's your least favorite character is it is it joe for joe Friedison? yeah yeah it's the father he just reminded me of everybody in my life that said oh you, you can't do that right that's not something you can do and I'm going, okay, 
Well, I'm not supposed to be alive today, but I am. Yeah. Because I didn't listen to guys who said, well, you've got six months. Better get your shit together. And that was years ago. And then I'm still here. Yeah. I don't. I mean, it it obviously didn't take. So I'm not a defeatist is, is what that means. Sure. And, but, but there have been situations where I go, maybe I should have listened. Maybe I should have paid attention. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've, I've had that person. before. Yeah. But oftentimes, I mean, that's a, that's like a one in 10, two in 10 kind of, yeah. <laughs> Cause oftentimes people are just blowhards who want to hear their own yeah. voice. Well, like podcasters. podcasters. Um, yeah. So what's your favorite scene? I just like the whole. Well, I mine's love the, the tr- mine's the transformation. I love the, the intro. Okay, um, where the workers are coming in. Yeah, and you you you. It's setting the tone. Oh, big time! Of the yeah. whole situation is, here's the class struggle. Here's and it. I I think. I mean, there are so many, really good scenes. The flooding scenes again. The elevator scenes. Of, oh my God, we forgot our kids. Yeah. Fucking mommy. <laughs> but now just the visualization of the workers going in the workers coming out and that whole there was there was music playing but there wasn't but I could hear the foot stomps I could hear the right. going through no sound but so my my right. version had a lot of the sound cut out yeah so it was a truly silent, silent movie film. for me yeah and just and I I kind of feel a bit like having an advantage over people watching it truly silently yeah Although I would love to hear the audio accompaniment because I do love orchestral, yeah, no, it was you know components to silent movies. But just to rely on the visuals and the placards, yeah. I just had such a unique experience. I feel like, oh yeah, and well, I because you have to pay attention. Exactly, exactly. I watched The Matrix with no uh, music accompaniment, sound effects, audio, voice. What? No. How did you even come across that? What are you talking about? And didn't I, have any I know music. the internet. I used to be on the internet a while. Uh, I, <laughs> I know the internet for a while. Um, but I came across this version where it was no music. Yeah. The most compelling movie I've watched in even I, I watched it again. I went. It's not as good as the first time I watched it because mm-hmm. there was no there was no drubbing soundtrack. There was no boom 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 getting you through. Setting the, the tone in a way that they want to set the yeah. tone. It's up to you to determine and interpret. Where are they going with this? Yeah, that's interesting. I never would have thought of the Matrix in those terms, but oh, yeah. now that I do, it certainly is compelling. And I think I may want to watch more movies without the influence of music. Yeah. No. I. I but uh, but like you know epics like Star Wars and oftentimes in Star Trek like TNG and and I mean. There were flurries and stuff in the original series, but TNG really had like an an orchestral yeah. like oh, yeah. background. Those I feel like are great influences. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean it, that's an interesting way to, to to watch it. I haven't watched a commercial for 20, 30 years uh, intentionally. intentionally. Sure, okay, sure. Um, where where I'm in the middle of a show and there's a commercial, and I'll sit there and watch the commercial. No, I won't. I'll turn the channel. I'll go do something or mute else. it. I mute, I mute a lot. Yeah. I'm a muter. Well, when you do that, watch the commercial. See what it is if you can figure I do out that. what they're trying to yeah. sell. My favorite is mind drugs. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I know if there's a field involved in some sort of oh, like, yeah. you know, old cha- people. Yeah. Old people. Yeah. And, or, or a doctor's <laughs> off or a chart. Yeah. I would love to watch old SNL commercial shorts with oh, the, yeah. the just yeah. like, like the, remember the diaper one when they're playing tennis? Oh, God. Yeah. 
you watch it without the sound, you get a totally different vibe from yeah. it because you don't have anything telling you where to look. Or yeah, or how to feel. Boom, boom. Because yeah, a lot of a lot of musical influence has to do with invoking emotion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And setting tone. So if if you're left to your own devices to do that, I, I think it, it yeah, it's a very unique individual experience as opposed to the one that the director and and you know cast wants to convey. Yeah. So did that guy just throw a beer out so. the window? That's and it's a PBR. That's one of the most <laughs> Portland things I've ever seen in my life. So. Dennis, where can we hear you perform next? And you you, uh, you also host a mic or three? I'm hosting uh, Open Mic at Republic Cafe on Saturdays at 7. Starts nice. at 7. Um, that's every knock on wood Saturday for right now. I set up a showcase once a month, first Thursday of the month at the Underbar in Vancouver. Great room. Uh, one, it's, of my, it's one of my favorite room. rooms. Yeah. Um, nothing, but, nothing but praise for that room. But uh, hopefully I'm going to be getting on some other shows. I travel. I've been doing some some road work lately, going up to Tacoma, going up to Seattle. Yeah, Tacoma Comedy Club is freaking rad. I definitely want to get fun. back out there. It's a trek, though, for us <laughs> it's, a little it's, bit. It's, it's like it's a four-hour four drive, it's, yeah. It's quite a ways. Which is fine. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to drive four hours. To not on a Tuesday. Ten minutes of dick jokes, yeah. <laughs> no, perhaps not on a Tuesday. That's... Uh, but if you ever want a road trip up there, man, I'm happy to, let's, yeah, you know, we'll oh, put something definitely. together. Hey, uh, Dennis, thanks so much for meeting up with me and talking about this. Uh, I thank you for recommending it to me. It had been a couple of years since I'd watched it when I went through my yeah. own silent movie phase, if you will, you know, like, I mean, it's, it definitely speaks to our modern world in more ways than not, because we're coming up on 2027. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that's five well, years away. Well, I think you can take a lot of what's being told is happening and compare it to what actually happens in this film because that's true Marxism that's true fucking socialism that they're portraying they're not fucking around when sure. they're showing you all these people yeah. working and doing and the classes laboring yeah. right yeah um, there is the pro the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and that's, yes. that's it and I like. think that would be more understandable comparing it to today's world well, our, our classes are being further divided without a middle class existing really anymore. Well, so. the middle class is going away. Everybody's at the poverty level or you're super rich. Right. And and I think that's what's portrayed in Metropolis. Yeah. I think that's why it's a relevant movie for today. Plus, it's just badass that they were able to do all of those effects. In 1920s. In, it's one of my biggest takeaways is the level of effects. Never reboot this movie. <laughs> Never do. Don't do it. Well, they were talking about doing it, and I'm going. You can't. No, you can't do it. It wouldn't. No. It wouldn't make sense. You can't, and you shouldn't, and they won't because if they do, I'll do something. We'll. We're gonna do something. <laughs> we'll it's on record. We're gonna do something about it. I'll put a sign up in my window. Well, how about we catch this first showcase at second. my father's place? Second. Oh. Uh, no, this one. Yeah, yeah. we're we're at, we're over. We were at my father's place, by the way. We're gonna ch we're gonna check out a showcase. I'm gonna go with the midnight mic, but that's pa that's past your bedtime. Probably I think. gonna go home. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm an old man. I gotta sleep for two hours and then get up. <laughs> yeah, it's to, my pattern. Yeah, to, to yell at the people delivering yeah. the the newspaper. There you go. Well, <laughs> all right, cool. Well, hey, thanks, Dennis. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks again, Dennis, for suggesting we cover Metropolis. It had been since my college days that I'd really watched it in earnest, and I didn't realize how influential it really is.
All right, y'all, you know what that sound means. It's time for this week's water cooler facts. This episode, we're going to take a look at the advancements made in robotics from the time the movie was filmed to what is on the cutting edge for robots. Robots are a staple for science fiction, and there have been hundreds of interpretations as to their design, uses, sentience, and rights, but what was the first example of a robot in science fiction? Well, that distinction goes to Isaac Asimov, who coined the term robotics for popular use, but there are instances in history of identifiable robots before then. Around 270 BC, an ancient Greek engineer named Cespius made water clocks with automatons or loose figures. Greek mathematician Archytas of Tarentum postulated a mechanical bird he called the pigeon, which was propelled by steam. Hero of Alexandria made numerous innovations in the field of automata, including one that allegedly could speak. In ancient China, an account about an automaton is found in the text written in the 3rd century BC in which King Mu of Zhou is presented with a life-size human-shaped mechanical figure by Yan Shi, an artificer. Czech writer Karl Kapik coined the term robot in his 1921 play called R.U.R. or Rosum's Universal Robots. The plot was simple and terrifying. The man makes a robot, then the robot kills the man. Science fiction writer and futurist Isaac Asimov first used the word robotics in 1941 to describe the technology of robots and predicted the rise of a powerful robot industry. Asimov wrote Runaround, a story about robots, which contained the, quote, three laws of robotics, which centered around artificial intelligence ethics questions. Norbert Weiner published Cybernetics in 1948, which formed the basics of practical robotics, the principles of cybernetics based on artificial intelligence research. British robotics pioneer William Gray Walter invented robots Elmer and Elsie that mimic lifelike behavior using elementary electronics in 1948. They were tortoise-like robots that were programmed to find their charging stations once they started running low on power. In 1954, George Duvall invented the first digitally operated and programmable robot called the Unimate, in 1956, Duvall and his partner Joseph Engelberger formed the world's first robot company. In 1961, the first industrial robot, Unimate, went online in a General Motors automobile factory in New Jersey. Since the early days of robotic automation, the desire to make robots capable of learning has co-driven the research into artificial intelligence, or AI. There are commercial and industrial robots that are now in widespread use performing jobs more cheaply or with greater accuracy and reliability than humans. Robots are used for jobs which are too dirty, dangerous, or dull to be suitable for humans. Robots are widely used in manufacturing, assembly and packing, transport, earth and space exploration, surgery, weaponry, laboratory research, and mass production of consumer and industrial goods. But they can become something so much more. With advancements in quantum computing and hydraulics, robots are becoming less like automatons and more like their creators, perhaps even poised soon to surpass our mental capacities as well as our physical ones. There's a lot of debate regarding AI. Not if, but when we will reach the AI singularity, which refers to an event where the AIs in our lives either become self-aware or reach an ability for continuous improvement so powerful that it will evolve beyond our control. While this is a reasonable concern in the future, it is more reasonable to assert that AI is at a tipping point. A tipping point is a state where a technology grows and permeates our lives very rapidly building upon itself. The distinction between the singularity and the tipping point is that the tipping point focuses on permeation, not intelligence. The AIs that we deal with today are not particularly smart when compared to the human brain. Yet. Before we go too far down this rabbit hole, I want to remind people not to fear the machines. 
Sure, we're seeing Boston Dynamics pump out robots that can do backflips for days and run obstacle courses that I'd probably break a limb on, but they're not able to make decisions for themselves. They're still just reacting to stimuli, incapable of generating original thought. So until then, we can rest knowing that our sentient robotic overlords are still at least a generation or two away. For now. I'd like to thank the sources for this week's episode, which are imdb.com, mentalfloss.com, classicmoviehub.com, thoughtco.com, and of course Wikipedia, because if it's on Wikipedia, it must be true. Also, shout out to my lovely wife Amanda for supplying me with some of those facts and enduring a good chunk of the movie. She's more into the talkies. Next week is a twofer, folks. I've got Double the Trouble with Brandon Little and Lucas Kopp. We're going to talk about the sci-fi action thriller The Running Man, which I've never seen, but I'm stoked to cover because I do love me some Schwarzenegger. You know, for being all muscly and stuff, he's kind of a nerd for sci-fi. Terminator, Eraser, Total Recall, The Sixth Day, Predator, and more. Fucking nerd. You can catch that episode on Tuesday, July 12th from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio. Hey, that weekend's going to be the Shady Pines Festival. Tyus McCowan, host of Euphonia, and I will be working the merchandise and beer booth both on Friday and Saturday, so come on down and say hi. Grab your Shady Pines merch and have a groovy time at Red Mud Ranch in Oregon City. But that's only if you've got your tickets because this thing is totally sold out. I cannot wait. Hey, before we go, check out this set from Dennis at the Portland's Funniest Person Competition. That's held annually at the Helium Comedy Club in Southeast Portland. Enjoy! right now for Dennis Cruz! Oh, let's keep it going for all the comics tonight, huh? You're having fun? You're having fun? You're feeling good? Yeah, all right. You know, every, every morning, I have to refer to the sun as Mr. Happy, right? Because hearing, fuck you, son, daily would just revert me to my childhood. I, uh, I, had, I, had to, I had to get a cancer removed from my face recently, you know? And, and they, say, they say getting up here, being a comedian takes confidence, right? Confidence is walking into melanoma surgery with a suntan. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, uh, I only shaved two times in the last two years. Both times, I found a tumor. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, 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 putting this, I'm putting this out there. It's a safety thing, right? Shaving causes cancer. Don't do it. Shaving causes cancer. I, uh, I, uh, I, was, I was in my doctor's office in the exam room, and they had, you know, a price list of all the procedures. And it turns out, cancer removal, same price as a permanent Brazilian. Yeah, but I was going to wait for the special two-for-one sale. I, uh, before I went in, before I went into the surgery, I had to get a bunch of scans done, right? I got enough radioactive dye in me, I developed superpowers. It was unexpected projectile vomiting. But I, but I took it, you know. Sorry, you're good, you're good. I, uh, they also, they also said that the dye may slightly alter the color of your urine, Right? So I guess I shouldn't have been surprised when it came out kryptonite blue. Oh, <laughs> well, I, uh, 
I, I, I did. I did get my first haircut during surgery. In, it was the first haircut I got in 16 months, right? But they only cut the left side. I came out looking like a geriatric Skrillex clone. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and I got to say this. I, gotta, I wish, you know, it felt like the ear they sewed on was mine. I mean, I mean, it's mine now. But, but it, it, it just seems a little different, you know? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, I think it's listening. I, uh, I, I, I was really hoping during the operation, right, they'd line the new skin with plastic, right? Put a button where the tumor was, because then I could have a face pocket, right? I could put pins in there, you know, mints, you know, sunblock. And, you know, I, I did find it funny when my melanoma doctor told me to avoid the sun because it'll enhance the appearance of the scars. You know, as opposed to, like, causing cancer and shit. I, uh, I, 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 I've had a little trouble sleeping, right? My left side's in, in some pain, right? And, and sometimes I'll start moaning, you know, into a moaning chain that ends up sounding like the theme song from Hawaii Five-O. The original, the original. You know, I, I, I have been getting a lot of work done being awake, right? And my boss has noticed, right? I heard him on the phone the other day. They were going, yeah, guy leaves for two days, comes back with a button on his cheek, doubles his output. We got to find more like them. I was just wondering if he was talking about me or the face pocket. I, you know, and, and I, I get it, right? You know, if you have a scar on your face, right? They're gonna call you a scar face. You know, it fits, it fits, right? Well, but what if you have multiple scars, right? Is it scars face? Or, or do you have to count them out by number? Like, hey, there goes five scar face Willie. Anyone, anyone, no? I'm asking for a friend, really, no? All right. You know, I, uh, I've often asked myself why I've had such an interesting life, right? And it's usually at 3 a.m. in an alley behind a bar somewhere, and there are reasons I'm asking, okay? But, but I got to say this. I got to say this. If someone is standing in front of you rubbing pistachios on their genitals, Okay? They're truly fucking nuts. <laughs> I'm Dennis. Thank you very much. <laughs>